Father, you say in your word that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from your mouth, and how we need to be reminded of that week after week, day after day, hour by hour. We confess that this world is not enough to feed our souls. So we pray, would you be among us now by your Spirit, teach us through your word, feed us, enlarge our appetites for your truth and for your grace. Would you promise that you are watching over your word to perform it? And we are eager to hear it now. So would you perform your word in our hearts, perform all of your good work in us as your word is proclaimed. For Jesus' sake we pray, amen. I wonder if you are content with your life this morning. If you are, why do you think that's so, that you are content? Maybe it's because you have just enough money, you're in the right job, the right house, the right car, the right wife, the right number of children, good friends. Then again, maybe you have all those just right things in the just right amounts and still you feel a nagging sense of discontentment. Why might that be? Of course, it might simply be that you've mismeasured your pleasures. Just a touch more here or there, just a tweak. One more house project, one more promotion, one more raise, one more house for vacations. Another child might do the trick. Or maybe, maybe not all the pleasure in the world could suffice because you were made for eternity. God made you for himself. And God made you to rejoice in him and to seek him. God made you to find your ultimate contentment not in his gifts, not even in the relationships with other people that he has given you, but in a reconciled relationship with Him as your faithful, righteous, loving Father. There's always been a temptation in life to attempt a material, consumer, hedonistic kind of self-sufficient pleasure. Now, financial independence is one thing. That's a good that the Bible recognizes. But self-sufficiency involves a kind of personal, spiritual, internal enoughness for myself that not even all the money in the world could buy. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 2, we'll see a Christian from the past learning that lesson the hard way. And we'll see that this has been a temptation not just of modernity, but for millennia. Well, remember from last week that Kohelet, the preacher, the author of Ecclesiastes, has already tried to find meaning in wisdom. 
and he failed. I mean, that's a really good place to start, to find meaning and wisdom, and he failed. God gave the children of man a task of being wise in a fallen world, but even wisdom cannot undo or unwind the curse. He says, the more I learned and observed about the world, the more frustrated I became because I didn't know what to do about what I knew. And even when I did know what to do about what I knew, it didn't always work to do it. So now he reasons, well, if I can't understand it all, if I can't fix it all, maybe I can at least experience it all, feel it all, do it all, enjoy it all, have it all. So maybe I can find meaning and satisfaction in work and all its rewards. Work hard, play hard. After all, God put Adam into the garden to work it and keep it. And even after the fall, we're supposed to still be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. So let's get to it, he says. Let's try that. Let's let's put all of our eggs in that basket. Let's go all in. On work hard, play hard. He says, in chapter 2, verse 1, I said in my heart, he starts talking to himself, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. So notice, he's not testing pleasure. He's testing his heart using pleasure. He's trying to discern something about himself. After all, look at, look at all the references to self here. Verse 1, enjoy yourself. Verse 3, my body, my heart. Verse 4, vineyards for myself. Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I searched with my heart to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I, brought, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I had gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delights of the sons of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. and Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was the reward for all my toil. And then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, the striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He's conducting an experiment on his heart. Can I enjoy myself enough to put the frustrations of life to rest? 
Can I ease my experience of life's absurdities using life's pleasures? Let's taste and see if pleasure is good enough to make me feel better about the crookedness of this world and the crookedness that I find in my own heart and life. True, what is crooked cannot be made straight. I know that now. And if what is lacking cannot be counted, then maybe I can numb my heart to the crookedness of life and my experience in it by working hard so I can play hard. And I'll just kind of distract myself with that. Maybe my heart will respond to pleasure as if it were a narcotic or at least an anesthetic. Spoiler alert, but behold, this is also vanity. I said of laughter, it's mad and of pleasure. What use is it? He gives you his conclusion, his evaluation of his test before he relates to you the experience of the test. He just lets you know ahead of time, here's how it turned out. Laughter was the first form of pleasure he tried, maybe since it's the direct opposite of his very serious and demanding search for wisdom in chapter 1. But he quickly discovered laughter to be a form of insanity, being out of your mind with lightheartedness, avoiding reality by not taking it seriously. You're just kind of getting high on laughter. Life is crooked, true, but just because you can't make it straight doesn't mean you can laugh it off either. Now, he doesn't mean that all laughter is sin. Don't be afraid to laugh at the potluck. But laughing off life's absurdities is not the cure. And of pleasure, more generally, he just asks, what lasting good does it do? What does it do? So what? What does it accomplish? It doesn't make anything better. It might make me feel better for a while, but what does it accomplish? It it doesn't take the crookedness out of life. This next attempt... Uh, finding meaning in pleasure is to mix a cocktail of alcohol mingled with just enough sobriety to enjoy it. Can I get the right buzz? Can I have the optimum blood alcohol level so I can enjoy myself and actually remember having a respectably good time? Maximize pleasure without impairing judgment in the least. And he knows he's walking a tightrope on this one. How to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under the sun. I mean, how much drinking and fooling around is just enough, but not so much that you say things you regret or spend a night in jail. And yet that approach in verse 3 seems so worthless to him that he, he doesn't even stop to evaluate it. He just moves on to the next try. Work hard, play hard. Verse 4 through 8, he relates how he developed a diversified life portfolio. He goes all in for achievement and acquisition. I made great works. I did great things. I built. He becomes a productive doer who produces great profits and affords himself great pleasures. And he starts with his own estate or estates, plural. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks, planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. 
It's like he made his own Downton Abbey or his own Biltmore estate where you just tour the gardens. You're like, man, this is awesome. Can you imagine living here? In fact, the Greek translation of the word there for parks is paradise. What's that remind you of theologically? It reminds you of the Garden of Eden. It's almost like he's trying to recreate for himself his own personal Eden. Estates, orchards, irrigation pools to sustain them, spare no expense. Not only that, he says, I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. So he's already told you about his estates. Now he's telling you, how did I afford to do that? I'll tell you how. I was a businessman. I had business assets. This guy got into both sheep and cattle. Those are capital investments in the ancient Near East. They are renewable, reproducible, economic, literal cash cows. And at record numbers, nobody had ever had this big of a flock or this big of a herd. But just in case his flocks and herds got diseased, he hedges his business investments with commodities, gold and silver. Because gold and silver don't contract tuberculosis like sheep and cattle do. And of all these investments, these businesses afforded him the ability to have servants and slaves all over the mansion, all over the grounds for his own convenience and pleasure. He fills his house with entertainers, singers, even sex partners. Again, all this was for himself. He's trying it all. He's not being philanthropic. These are his private holdings. This is where he lives. This is how he lives. He's trying it all. The result in verse 9, So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. It worked. I became great. Also, my wisdom remained with me. So Kohelet did not become some Caligula figure. He didn't go off the deep end, lose it, become totally immoral and irrational and crazed, insane, violent. He developed historic prosperity that afforded him satisfaction in every domestic leisure pursuit he could find, and it gained him an international reputation. Everybody knew about this guy. He retained his good sense while he had a year, it seems, of yes days where he said no to nothing at all that he wanted. And his pleasure project succeeded. For my heart found pleasure. I got it. My heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward, my portion. This was my paycheck. This was my enjoyment. This was how I got to live. This is what my work earned for me. I got it all and I got it honest. He did it. He lived the dream. He became a composite of Steve Jobs, Jeff Bezos, Warren Buffett, and Dave Ramsey to manage it all, to not blow it, 
And he actually enjoyed all of it. He liked it. It was fun to him. It was rewarding to him, deeply rewarding in his heart. Until, until he stopped to think about it. Then I considered, ah, there's the pivot. I started thinking about how I was living. I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. I mean, you you can almost picture that moment in his life, right? You can see that scene in the movie. The confetti's dropped. The party's over. Everybody has gone home. It's nighttime now. He's sitting on the foot of his bed. He looks down. (laughs) What was that? What did that even mean? He's all alone with his thoughts on his ancient Near Eastern yacht. And it's quiet and silent. What does all this mean? I mean, even the pleasure of it. Is that pleasure even significant? I mean, so what? So what that I had a great time? So what that I have a great time every day? So what that money is no object to me? So what? What is all this pleasure funded by all this prosperity? What does it really accomplish? What is it doing? Because I'm still me. And the world is still the world. What does all of this really add to who I am? The consumer, and retail delights, the sober partying, the concerts, the sex. So what? What am I living for? Is this really it? Work hard, play hard, rinse, repeat. But to what end? Why? None of this is straightening out anything that's crooked. I'm just numbing myself or getting myself high on these things, but when I come back down, everything's still the same, and so am I. So all this pleasure, funded by all this prosperity, and still there's a senseless circularity to it, just like he observed in the sky in chapter 1. Sun goes up, sun goes down. Sun goes up, sun goes down. Sun goes up, sun goes down. Where is this going? Even with pleasure. The pleasure faded with the novelty. The sad vacuity still remained. So said Pastor Charles Bridges over 100 years ago. And he was only echoing Martin Luther's sentiment that the empire of the whole world is but a crust thrown to a dog.
Now again, we should clarify, Kohelet is not saying that work or hard work is bad or that you should not try to advance your lot in life or that you shouldn't try to provide better for your family or enjoy your lot in life. In fact, he's going to advise you to do just those things multiple times as the book continues. This is not a hymn to professional lethargy or domestic mediocrity in the name of being a spiritual person. A Christian should not be financially dependent on other people. You should work hard with your hands if you are able-bodied so that you are financially self-sufficient and that you have some, something extra to share with those in need. The Apostle Paul said that in Ephesians 4. Part of you being a Christian is you being financially independent and being a sharer, a giver, not a taker. Work hard, provide well. You've got to live out your calling in this world, your vocation. None of this is saying that every Christian should quit their job and become a missionary. Maybe that's you, but not necessarily. Nor is Kohelet campaigning for a 30-hour work week. As much as we might like to impose that interpretation on his discontentment. What Kohelet is saying is that if you try to get all your meaning and enjoyment in life from your blood, sweat, and tears, if you seek the contentment of your heart and professional achievements and the domestic pleasures they afford you, you will be just as disappointed and disillusioned as Kohelet was. Your kitchen remodel cannot be nice enough or new enough or lasting enough to give you meaning in your home. Your sex life cannot be good enough or frequent enough to satisfy your heart. And this is all true whether you're a Christian or not. I mean, you don't have to be a secular humanist or an atheist to fall into this trap and try this stuff for yourself. Kohelet was not a secular humanist. He was not an atheist. He did not forget about God in these times. But there's only gain in any of these pursuits if they enable you to store up treasure in heaven. So the point of all this, the point of the passage, is that productive, even productive prosperity, it can afford you pleasure, it can, but not meaning. Not meaning. Kohelet's verdict in verse 11 is not on pleasure. It's on the effort it took for him To afford pleasure. Pleasure's great. (laughs) That's what pleasure is. (laughs) It's hard to argue against pleasure. But look at all the effort it took for him to enjoy all that pleasure. So pleasure, again, is not categorically bad. He found pleasure, found it rewarding, his portion, his lot. But when he looks back on all the hardship it took him to afford and produce that pleasure... It didn't seem worth it to him. 
And he had it all. The effort he expended was great, and the pleasure was great as well. But as great as the pleasure was, it disappointed him. All things considered, considering what he had to do to get it. He hoped that the effort would produce a pleasure that might change him. Maybe this will fix, maybe this will straighten out what's crooked in the way I feel about my life, the way I look at my life, the way the world is. But after all was said and done, there was no gain, he said. There was no gain. All that profit, all that pleasure, and no gain. How can that be? This guy earned a lot of money. How can he say there was no gain in it? He had a lot of pleasure. How can you say there's no gain in all that? It's because he was still himself. It didn't change him. And pleasure did not produce meaning. I want to apply this a few different ways. The first... I want to think about how these things apply to God and to our view of God. When Kohelet got to the end of his pleasure and work experiment, he said, Behold, all was vanity. He looked at all his hands had done, the toil he had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. Only God's work is not vanity. Only God's work is not vanity, and only God's pleasures produce meaning. Kohelet will say in 3.14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it or anything taken from it. God's creational work is good seven times over in Genesis 1, and the pleasures he has in his own Trinitarian relationships among Father, Son, and Spirit in himself make him self-sufficient, without ever needing anything from what or who he created. God's not like us. God is never discontent. He never feels need or has need. He is eternally joyful and satisfied in himself, and he does nothing to no purpose or to no effect. I do a lot of things to no purpose and to no effect. God does nothing to no purpose or no effect. And for that reason, he is worthy of our worship and our awe. You respect people. You respect effective people, don't you? You read about them in business magazines. You follow them on blogs, whether you're a businessman or a housewife, you, you look up to people who you think, oh, wow, look at this idea. This is so efficient. This is so effective. This is so meaningful. This is so successful. He, she has it all together. They're living the life that some consider a myth. And yet God is 
perfectly effective, always achieves what he aims. He established the mountains, the skies, the seas. They have remained and they are good. Fallen now, groaning because of our sin, but still good. God created us in his image to know him, love him, serve him forever, to enjoy fullness of meaning in all that he is and means for us, in all that he does. And when we took from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden, which he forbade, we were trying to find meaning, moral meaning, out from under his authority. So notice, we didn't become atheists immediately. We became rebels against the God we knew. We started thinking hard thoughts against God. We did not think Him out of existence. We just rebelled against Him and tried to shut Him out of our world, out of His own world. We tried to find in the world what we could only find in God, moral meaning. And when we did that, we were trying to un-God God. And we were trying to deify our own desires and will. And that's why it's right that the penalty for our sin is eternal conscious torment in hell. Some people have a hard time with that doctrine. How can my sin be that serious that it deserves eternal conscious torment in hell? I just can't imagine a good God would do that, really. Well, who do you think God is? And what do you think your sin actually meant? And who do you think it was against? It was against Him. And when we sinned, and every time we sin, we are really trying to un-God God. Because we are saying, you're wrong to expect this of me. And I'm not giving it to you. You might as well say, I wish you were not in heaven, and I wish you had nothing to do with what I do on the earth, and I don't like you being an authority. I like me being an authority. Ah, now you see. I hope. Yeah, sin is way more serious than we thought, and so is God. But because God is gracious kind, patient, and merciful because he's slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He sent us his son, Jesus Christ, to take on our human form. When Jesus walked the earth, he said, my food, my food is to do the will of my father who sent me and to accomplish his work Jesus found the work of obeying his Father nourishing, renewing, soul-feeding. There was nothing absurd or senseless about it. Not to him. He was effective in all he did while he walked the earth, and it was satisfying to his heart. His healings took only a word from his mouth Effortless and effective. Totally opposite of Kohelet, right? Kohelet, all this work, all this work, all this work. It's vain. Who cares? So what? 
But with Jesus, he speaks the word, it's effective, it's satisfying, and it's healing, and it changes things. Four people. And it is his same word that still breathes life into hearts that are dead in sin and selfishness today. He felt our human absurdity when he walked this earth. A suffering servant said in Isaiah 49, 4, I've labored in vain. He felt that. I've spent my strength for nothing and for vanity. And he was sinless. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And it was. Jesus did all his miracles with effortless effectiveness. And he was crucified for it. Absurd, senseless. I've spent my strength for nothing and in vain. But his right, his cause was with the Lord. His vindication was with his God. And his recompense, his lot, the fruit of his toil, was resurrection to eternal joy and eternal rule over God's kingdom. Even his death then accomplished exactly what he intended. Atonement for the sins of all those who will ever turn from their sins and trust in Jesus. He said from the cross, it is finished. It is Jesus' achievement. It is his accomplishment, both in his sinless life and in his atoning death as the substitute sacrifice for our sins, that affects our salvation and restores all meaning. His life, death, and resurrection is what built for us a reconciled relationship with God. And his resurrection proves that he is the one that God has appointed to judge the living and the dead. And if we turn from our own selfishness, Selfish ambition, love for the world, the trust in Jesus, he will free us from our sin and selfish pursuits. He will even free us from the senseless treadmill of working hard to play hard for nothing. And he introduces us into the pleasures that are at his right hand forevermore. Psalm 16, he welcomes us into the pleasures of his own Trinitarian fellowship. Can you imagine that? Can you believe that? Have you experienced it? communing with God in Christ by his indwelling spirit. And what Jesus is building now is his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he is also preparing a place for us to be with him forever and eternity. And those works will work. They will succeed. They will bring us eternal, satisfying pleasure with God in eternity. And He will bring us, all of His trusting people, into the renewed paradise of God. And that is a pleasure that provides all the meaning you could ever want because the triune God is eternal, and therefore His significance for us is inexhaustible. Whether you're a Christian or not, There's literally nothing in this world that can compare to the pleasure and significance of a reconciled relationship with the God who made you and the Christ who saves you. Charles Bridges again said, the crumbs, the crumbs 
of the gospel are infinitely richer than the delicacies of the world. Now think about how you spend your energies, your time, your discretionary income. Do you spend it like you believe that? That the crumbs of the gospel are infinitely more satisfying than even the delicacies of the world. God created you for something greater, something better than selfishness, and selfish pursuits and selfish ambition, and selfish pleasures, self-indulgence, self-promotion. Hard work is good. Providing for a family is good. Developing your skill is good. Financial independence is good and right. Having a vocation in this world that does your fellow humanity good is good and right. Gaining and exercising righteous authority at work, that's good and right. And there is pleasure in those things as far as it goes. But it only goes so far. The project of building yourself a better self through capitalism, consumerism, materialism, and hedonism is not as good as it gets. Relating to God in Christ is as good as it gets. Why? Because we become what we behold. We look like what we look at. To be obsessed with self-advancement through careers, corporations, commodities, and with self-improvement through cars, clothes, computers, estates, is to worship the creature rather than the creator. Now, only you know whether you're doing that with those things in your heart. But none of us should worship self. And we worship self when our whole lives and sense of meaning revolve around those things, having them, enjoying them, keeping them. Again, you have a vocation to live out. It's good to enjoy that. But... You cannot seek meaning from that because your vocation was not designed to fill your heart with meaning. The eternal human soul cannot be sated by any temporal good. Productive prosperity can afford you pleasure, but it cannot afford you meaning. Only the eternal God who created you and is Christ who saves you can give your soul meaning. Your work in this world cannot carry the infinite burden of providing your soul with ultimate significance. Only Jesus can provide that for you in reconciled relationship to your creator. And look, even if you did, even if you did quit your job, become a pastor, become a missionary, if you put your whole sense of security and meaning and significance into your ministry in this life, it's going to fail you. It's going to disappoint you because it doesn't always turn out like you thought. Only Jesus can do that for you. You know, this whole paragraph shows you just what Kohelet means by there's nothing new under the sun. If you've always wondered, like, how in the world can the Bible say there's nothing new under the sun when I got an iPhone and they didn't even dream of those back then? Well, Kohelet's project from thousands of years ago here in chapter 2 looks awfully familiar, does it not? 
looks familiar to us today, all the categories are the same. It's been millennia. And we're trying to find happiness and contentment and meaning in what we can build and buy still today. Our home improvement projects, our TVs, our iPhones, our yards, our gardens, our estates and investments, our corporations and commodities. It's all the same stuff, isn't it? We still want all the same experiences because we still gravitate towards worshiping the same triune party God, wine, women, and song. Turn up the music, bring out the girls, pour the beer. It's nothing new under the sun. The only difference is there's an app for it now. But we're still looking for the same thing. We're just learning how to find it faster. We should learn from this as a human race that we cannot rebuild a material paradise in this world that automatically provides meaning for all sorts of people. Whether it's the right trying to create jobs and cut taxes or the left trying to create equality of opportunity and outcome for all, materialism and consumerism are not the answers to our social ills. Prosperity has only ever taken humanity so far and when prosperity has run its unchecked course, moral decadence has run it into the ground. That was Israel's story. It was Rome's story. It is perhaps becoming the American story. Prosperity cannot build a paradise, whether personal or national. You can provide good-paying jobs and cut taxes. You can give people guaranteed income and access. And even when it produces prosperity that converts into real pleasure, it will not produce meaning. Prosperity campaigns on the promise of contentment. But it never delivers. Prosperity is the ultimate lying politician. That's why the Bible includes the phrase, the deceitfulness of riches. Because contentment happens in the heart which is the one place you cannot put money and things. Ecclesiastes 2 is the Old Testament testimonial version of 1 John 2.16 that was read earlier in the service. Do not love the world or the things of the world. Kohelet learned that the hard way. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world, and the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Kohelet tried loving the world. He tried it. And he found that it took him off track from doing the will of God. There was pleasure in it. That's why it's tempting. You're not tempted to things in which there are no pleasure. Of course there's pleasure in it. But it was passing because that's the nature of this world and all that you can desire in it and from it. It's passing away, desires and all. William Greenhill defines the world as the creatures of the world, the customs and fashions of the world, 
or the splendor, pomp, glory, and worship of the world. And he says to love the world is to highly esteem those things. So take a moment to stop and think, friend. Are these the things you highly esteem? Is that what you're living for? Is that what you think is going to produce meaning and significance in your life and for your family and for your children and grandchildren? Are these the priorities around which you order the rest of your life and everything else gets the leftovers of your pursuit of the world? What is your heart set on? Think of the parable of the great banquet in Luke 14. The invitees all alike began making excuses. And the excuses they make are not sinful in and of themselves. But they become sinful because of the priority they take. The first said, I have bought a field. Is it sinful to buy a field? No, it is not. I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Ah, there's the sin. Have me excused from the great banquet at the wedding supper of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, because I bought a field. Another said, have I, I've bought five yoke of oxen. I got a fleet of delivery trucks. I got to go inspect them. Please have me excused. I'm too busy to relate to Jesus. Another said, I have married a wife. That's the will of God. I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. My family is too important for the things of God. I promised her I'd be home for dinner. Ah, but have you missed dinner for work? I bet you have. They refused an invitation to come to God's kingdom because they were concerned with their own worldly interests, estates, businesses, even marriage, things about which there's nothing wrong in themselves. That, that is what it looks like to love the world. It's to let your career, your business, your desires for worldly success, your productivity, prosperity, and pleasures in worldly goods crowd out the invitation to commune with the living Christ. Isaiah's question could still be posed to us. Why do you spend your labor on what does not satisfy? But of course... We still have to live in this world. Even Kohelet acknowledges that it's good to enjoy your labor and its fruits. So how do we relate to the world without loving it? 1 Corinthians seven twenty nine is a good start. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Don't abuse that. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of the world is passing away. 
In other words, you live well in this world by relativizing it. Yeah, you still have a wife, but you live for Jesus, not her. You still have sorrows, but you put them in the context of heaven's joys. You still rejoice in the pleasures of the world for what they are, but you do not make them ultimate. You still buy, but you hold it all with an open hand, and you don't seek personal change or meaning through what you can purchase. You use the things of the world for what they are without loving them for what they are not. Those who buy as though they had no goods. That's how you live. To figure out whether you love the world then, consider how you feel if it's taken away. We are rightly sad when we lose loved ones. We're also sad when we lose money in the market or when we lose a car to a wreck or lose money to home repairs. But again, listen to William Greenhill. If a godly minister is taken away, if ordinances are taken away, if a Sabbath is taken away, if religious meetings are taken away, who is troubled by these things? Would you be as troubled if we shut down one of the services of the church as you would be troubled if you lost a car in a wreck? Friend, the life of the local church does not just concern your social life. It concerns your soul. And yet our hearts will grieve more over the loss of money and homes, cars and computers than if we were to miss out on the means of grace. Many Christians make decisions based more on money, house and job than on church and the welfare of their eternal souls. That is an evidence of loving the world. Kohelet tried to find meaning in money and entertainment's pleasures. But David said of God's words, Psalm 19.10, more to be desired are they, God's words, God's commands, than gold. Reading your Bible is a better investment than a commodity. Even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. God's word, says David, is better than honey or money. You know honey is sweet when you taste it. If your sense of taste works, honey is sweet to you. If you have long COVID and you lost your taste buds... Honey will not taste sweet to you. You won't be able to taste the difference between honey and kale. But it's not honey's fault that you can't taste it. And honey did not become kale just because you can't taste the difference between the two when you lose your sense of taste. And if your taste buds don't work, then I can't convince you that honey is sweet just by creating an argument for its sweetness. I can't tell you 
about the molecular structure of honey and then be like, see, so it's sweet. I know you can't taste it, but see, I argued my case. It's watertight. It's the same thing with God's word. If scripture tastes to you like the white of an egg, it's William Greenhill's image. If scripture tastes to you like the white of an egg or like a water chestnut, the problem is not with scripture. If it's just kind of bland and dull to you, the problem is not scripture. Because scripture is sweet. You just can't taste it for what it is. You and I should want to understand God's word more than we want honey. And we should think about growing in our understanding of God's word like eating honey. Honey's great. When my children try to apply honey to a piece of toast, I have to stop them from using too much. I mean, the Bible could have said that the commands of God are like jelly. And man, my four-year-old would really get that. I mean, he puts jelly on everything. And too much jelly. I got to stop him from using jelly. I got to stop myself from eating too much honey. But is that how we feel about Scripture? You don't have to convince somebody to put honey on something. It's natural to like honey. It's natural to like something sweet. But we should want God's more, word more than we want honey and more than we want money. Because Scripture is more valuable than money, more to be desired than the most valuable commodity in great quantities. And yet, what are those thorns that choke out the seed of the gospel in the parable of the soils, the cares of the world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things, Mark 4, or as Luke 8 puts it, the cares and riches and pleasures of this life. That's what chokes out the gospel. Now, I'm going to try to tread lightly here. But isn't this the real reason we don't like long church services and long sermons? It's not attention span, is it? I mean, we can concentrate for long hours at a time on chasing money. We do it all week. We can watch long movies. We can go to long concerts and musicals. We can watch long football and basketball games. In fact, just this year, baseball's new pitch clock is now reducing, reducing baseball games to an average length of two and a half hours, down from 310 this time last year. People golf for six hours at a time if you're doing 18. We can think long and hard about home improvement projects. We binge watch crime dramas for hours on end. You walk on your car all afternoon or in the yard. Ah, oh, but suddenly when scripture is the topic, suddenly the modern attention span shrinks to 30 minutes. That's hard to believe. Listen again to William Greenhill. Are you content with a little grace? With a little knowledge of God? With a little communion with God? With a little heavenly mindedness? 
But are you not eager for the things of the world and never content and satisfied with what you have of them? Would you not have more and more and more and still more of the things of the world, more this week, more next year, and daily more and more of the world? And yet, ah, just a little godliness is enough. A little scripture is enough. A little praying is enough. A little church is enough. Is not something wrong. Kohelet said in verse 11 of his search for meaning and prosperity and pleasure, there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Nothing to be gained. And in doing so, in saying that, he directs us once more to Jesus' words from Matthew 16, 26. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? All the prosperity and pleasure in the world cannot do a thing for the sins and sorrows and salvation of the soul. As God himself said to the rich fool who stockpiled his crops in Luke 12, Fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Ah, that's a question that even Kohelet was asking. I don't even know who I'm storing this up for. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Oh, friend, are you rich towards God? Yet that question begs another. How do you get rich towards God? Well, you have to know and trust in Jesus because all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Jesus. Only in Jesus do we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace. And God raises his own trusting people to new life with Christ so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. God wants us to be strengthened in our hearts by knowing and experiencing the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 3, Philippians 4. He wants us to be satisfied by the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. That's true wealth. And you don't have to be rich to have it. Moses was wise to consider even the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Even the reproach of Christ is better than the riches of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. There's something better coming. And you see, you won't live like this unless you believe in heaven unless you believe there really is a reward. That's how you're living, considering the reproaches of Christ, greater wealth and the treasures of this world, because you look forward to the heavenly crown. Friends, you know the riches of God and Christ. Are you rich towards God in that way? Do you have the riches of Christ's righteousness credited to your account by faith? If you do, then... Don't you want to look at that account more and more to see all that's in there and find your security in in your heavenly balance? You know what it's like when your 401k is growing. You can't look at it enough. Well, your heavenly account is growing in Christ. Don't you want to look at it? Don't you want to see what's in there?
Do you want those riches more than your paycheck and what it can buy? In Matthew 18, 15, the passage on private and public church discipline, what Jesus wants you to gain is your brother when you confront him privately in his sin and he repents. Then you gain your brother. That's gain. Now you really got something. You gained your brother back. The gain we ought to be working for is the heavenly master's gain in his own investment on us. That's what Jesus says in the parable of the stewards of the talents in Matthew 25. Heavenly gain. Good spiritual fruit in the encouragement of the souls of others. Growth in the holiness of others because they listen to you. Because they watch you. Because they imitate you. Because they learn from you. The reason Paul becomes all things to all men in 1 Corinthians 9, the reason he's so flexible on issues that don't touch the gospel is that he wants to gain souls. But that drive to gain souls was rooted in the fact that Paul himself had gained Christ. He says of himself, Philippians 3, 7, but whatever gain I had in this world, whether it was money or religious notoriety for his legalism and Judaism, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I've suffered the loss of all things, the loss of all things for the sake of Christ and counted them rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. He's living for a whole different kind of gain. The only wealth you really need is the riches of God's grace to you in Christ. And it's all over the place in the Bible. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. Don't seek the other things. Seek God's righteousness for you in Christ. Seek to know Christ. Seek to help others grow in righteousness. Seek to know the riches of the mystery of Christ. Seek to gain souls for Christ. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of this world. And those other things, God will take care of those other things for you. Godliness with contentment, Paul says, that is great gain. Why? Because godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Paul not only knew but trusted that Hebrews 12 says that without faith it is impossible to please God because whoever would draw near to God must believe not only that he exists but that he is a rewarder of those who seek him, not themselves. Do you live like that? If so, then you can say with Paul, to live is Christ and to die. To die is gain. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that we are distracted with a great many things. We confess that we have trouble keeping all these things in right and righteous 
godly perspective. So forgive us for seeking from the world what we can only have from you. Reform us, change us, renew us. Transform us by the renewing of our minds. May we not be conformed to the pattern of this world. May we not love this world as it's passing away. But may we love the things of God and Christ, the things of your scriptures, the things of the world to come. May we believe that you are and that you are a rewarder of those who seek you. For Jesus' sake, amen.